And we are live with our 59th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again. Uh, we're really excited today. Um, we've got James Wickett joining us, uh, and you know he's going to talk to us about all the DevOps things. But before we get to that, oh, it sounds like uh, Matt thinks that we have an echo, apparently. I don't know whose echo it is because it, it sounds fine to me, but it's probably Ken that forgot to mute his, his YouTube stream again. Um, before we get to that, there's a couple of announcements. Um, like all, uh, Ken and I have mentioned this a couple of times that we're going to be at AppSec Global uh, in Tel Aviv in a couple of weeks. We're teaching our secure code review course. If you're going to be there, reach out. Uh, we will have absolute AppSecs swag, right? Uh, T-shirts and pins and other things. So if you want any of that, please let us know. Uh, uh, besides that, um, I don't know if we've got a lot on the calendar uh, outside. I mean, I definitely will be at DEF CON. Um, I'm still doing the Hacker Tracker stuff. Uh, Ken, do you have any other places that you're going to be? I'm trying to unmute because I'm muted because now I'm like self-conscious that I'm causing some sort of a uh, echo. Okay, the echo is a lie. We just yeah. have like right off the bat. But we, we just, just right got trolls today. Trolls. It's awesome. Like you brought you brought them out with you, James. So this your is, Austin, this is, your Austin crew. Seems to be my thing now. It's, your, it's oh. the Austin crew. No, I, I seem to just bring out trolls. That's that's uh, that's what happens. Oh, okay, got it. Awesome. Yeah, um, that's okay. We'll work through it. No, I think actually Matt really thought it like there is an echo, but I think it's just his, his audio. Um, cool. So, what was your question? You asked where, where am I going to be? Yeah. Oh man, I got, I'm going to Austin next. As a matter of fact, I'm going to Austin next week. Um, going to uh, Tel Aviv the week after. Probably in San Francisco the week after that. A little break, and then I'm going to be in Phoenix. So. Uh, yeah, I'll be around traveling for the next uh, month or so. So um, it's going to be a lot of a lot of travel. And then conference-wise, besides, well, we we've got OWASP uh, AppSec Day in October for uh, Melbourne. Yep. Um, and I think I'm going to try and make it to. We'll get into this uh, since uh, since James is the founder of uh, LastCon. Um, we will. Uh, I'm gonna try and make it out there, uh, so yeah, it should be fun. But um, yeah, I think should like. What is there anything you want to cover? Uh, you know, Seth for the for the for the, for the podcast. podcast. Yeah. yeah, not 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 particularly. I know we owe people uh, t-shirts. If you've been on the podcast and you're listening, and we haven't gotten you one, please reach out. Hit us up on Slack or on Twitter somewhere. Um, yeah. Other than that, right? Let's just dive into uh, the AppSec Minute. The AppSec Minute this week, we're going to take a break from the uh, Port Swigger list, and we're actually going to talk about some stuff that Ken did this weekend. He posted a he had a blog post on carnalownage.attackresearch.com. Um, had to do with Minecraft. So Ken, let's let's jump into it. Tell us what you did. Tell us what happened, and um, you know why you did it. Right. For sure. Yeah. So, and if I seem like. So by the way, this this morning's tweet with the like, hey, we're going live at 9 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, noon Eastern Standard Time. That was me. I'm out of it today. Like, I'll try to do my best. I don't know why, but there's a lot of ums and yas and not getting time zones correct and whatever. 
we'll wing it. But uh, yeah, this weekend, my wife was sick and we were stuck indoors and it was cold and rainy. And, it, you know, my son and I, we were just sort of stuck inside. So he wanted to do, uh, I, I wrote a blog post about this and I'll link to it. But yeah, he wanted to do a Minecraft mod. Um, and the version that's publicly available was, it didn't have kind of the, the stuff that he wanted. It was pretty limited. So to get him the stuff that he wanted, I did a little homework. Turns out there's like this Patreon. If you donate five bucks, you get access to that um, mod. So we downloaded the mod, or I paid the five bucks, downloaded the mod. And uh, so the version that I was like trying to run has this uh, check inside of it, beta, a beta tester check basically, and, and also checks to see if you're a dev on the dev list. Um, but anyways, all I know is like when I booted it up, uh, it said like, you're not authorized to use this um, mod. So I went back to the Patreon page uh, or like the email I got. And sure enough, it, it said, well, you need to email me your Minecraft usernames and then you'll get access to this uh, mod within maybe 24 hours and whatever. Like I'm skeptical that'll actually ever happen. So I still haven't gotten responses to my emails from the uh, mod creator. Anyway, so uh, basically, you know, hey, this is a jar that's running locally. I'm sure there's something we can do. So kind of just like to show my son, you know, hey, here's here's what you do as a hacker. Here's here's like what you, here's what this is about. I got, you know, I had JD GUI. I took JD GUI, uh, picked apart the um, the mod, looked for like, you know, the, the error message, the unauthorized use message, uh, found where it was in the code and ended up finding that there is a, um, yes, thank you for link, linking the JD GUI. Uh, but I found that there was a ch check in the code that was going out to pastebin.com uh, to download a list of what looked like GUIDs or UUIDs or, you know, random numbers, right? Or, and letters. So, uh, I was kind of like, what are these UUIDs mapped to? Found out there's a website uh, for, and I'm gonna find the, the links here. Um, there's a there's a website that takes your username and provides a UUID and like vice versa. And so that information is publicly available. So I originally started like decompiling, trying to like change the source code and recompile it. Um, to get this authorization check to like basically not exist anymore. And um, that was like taking a little bit too much time. So I just decided to run my son's Mac over here and my system through uh, Burt proxy. And um, so when the mod loaded up, it would make a request out the paste bin. And then I put a match and replace um, rule inside of Burt proxy so that for the, for like I basically one of the UUIDs that came back, I just matched, I just re replaced it with ours, uh, with our UUIDs. And um, sure enough, that worked. We were able to like use the mod. There was no longer this unauthorized use error. So that was kind of cool. And here's the link to that. But even cooler is uh, Matt, who is my coworker, is going to release a blog today. He got, because I shared the link with him because I know he's he was huge into Minecraft. So he um, he's going to release a blog post today where he gave me this like 20 lines of code. And what he uses is Java reflection. So there's two mods. There's the original mod that has like the unauthorized use. And there's the second mod that uses Java reflection to instantiate the classes and then override that method and turn, you know, the result into like, hey, you're authorized. So it's really cool. That's coming out today. And I'll uh, obviously post the links when um, that's available. But yeah, so the point is like, 
use JD GUI to decompile jar files, figure out what all is going on, how they're doing that authorization and um, put yourself on the list. Cool. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's very similar to what we do when we're testing, you know, even like Android apps, right? Uh, like, uh, you know, JD GUI is super helpful when I don't have source code for Android because it does tear that apart and give me access to different pieces. And then I know what to instrument with Frida and other things. So um, it's interesting how it applies. I, that's all right. You know, across the board, it, it seems like it's the same stuff that we run into, whether it's you know, in free time like Ken or, you know, on the job. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it was kind of like, I kind of wanted them to see it. it. By the way, nothing against the creator or anything like that. Like, it's not meant to be anything like that. It's meant to be kind of a lighthearted, like, you know, we just, it was a fun story. I got to show my son pretty much what the value is and like knowing how to program and knowing how to read source code and knowing how to, you know, basically make work around. That's what a hacker is, right? Like we make, we make things work with a uh, weird workaround. So it was a really fun thing. And then I think Matt's post today is going to be really awesome because it go, goes a little bit deeper with uh, Java reflection. So it's super fun. But I love that you took something that was just broken, right? And it's like, hey, let's get this to work. Yeah, yeah. My son thought I was the coolest thing too. He's like, what? How does this work? So it's a good life lesson, you know, like learn things because you'll be able to make things that weren't working work. So yeah, kind of fun. Cool. So I said, I think that's enough for the absolute or the AppSec minute. I think we should delve into uh, introducing James. That sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So James Wicket is the, so he's, were you the one of or the founder of Lone Star Application Security uh, Conference, uh, LastCon? Yep, I was one of, it was me and uh, Josh Sokol. Awesome. It's one of my top uh, conferences. I, I think like AppSec Cali, LastCon, and Locomoco, always touting those as sort of the favorites. Uh, you did a great job with that. Um, and that's how you know we met as well as through a WASP uh, meetup in Austin. You... You you also help with DevOps Days Austin. You're pretty pretty active in the DevOps community. You uh, talk a lot about, you speak a lot about cloud security, uh, rugged DevOps, which we'll talk about, and uh, just security in DevOps or DevSecOps or however you want to refer to it. Um, your talk at LocomogoSec was awesome. Um, every time I see you speak, it's it's you, you've got great talks. Uh, so you're very active in the community. Also, uh, James has a lynda.com uh, um, DevOps security focused um, training material along with Ernest. Uh, so I'm trying to think if there's anything I left out there. Um, uh, Seth, anything to add? No, just that I like I've never been to LastCon, and it's always one of those that I'm like, ah, oh, crap, I missed it again, right? You know, because I hear from Ken and from everybody else, hey, this is it's like me and Locomocosec, right? Apparently, there was a conference in Hawaii that I missed a couple of weeks ago. I don't know <laughs> if you know, it's been the running joke, but yeah, we're gonna we'll, we'll try and make it down this year, and you know, <clears throat> see how it see how it is. But you know, welcome to the show. Um, yeah, I. I'm like, first of all, like, let's just, you know, dive into it. I, I guess you can answer, you know, Matt Conda's rugged question if you want to, to start with, or oh, we could just dig into your oh, background. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, Seth, Seth and Ken, I really appreciate y'all having me on the show. And uh, for LastCon, uh, you know, we, it's it's kind of weird now to think about it, but when we started LastCon, it was because uh, Josh Sokol and I had been, we'd been kind of running the uh, 
uh, OWASP chapter for several years here in Austin. And okay. we didn't, we, we had a security conference that, um, and I struggled to think of the name of it, but it was more like infrastructure disaster recovery type of, uh, type conference, but it was, uh, it would take place here in Austin, then in Houston, then in San Antonio, and it would rotate and every, every third year or second year, depending on the rotation schedule, uh, Austin would have a security conference. Nowadays, like it's, there's, there's conferences you can, you know, you know, there's conferences all the time in Austin that are happening, but back then, like security and even developer conferences outside of like South by Southwest were pretty, you know, slim pickings here in Austin, which may be hard to believe, but that was, uh, what that's 2010 was our first one, so it's been it's been a, been a little bit of a bit, been right? A few so, years, yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't help uh, run Lascon uh, the last couple of years. So we have a really great core team in uh, OWASP Boston that, that help out with that. And uh, but my my wife was like, you you run too many conferences and you do too many things. You got to like you know pick some, right? So she's a great uh, pick, yeah, pick your in favorites my, in my yeah. in my life. So uh, I felt like. Last kind of had a really good stable base and supporting organization and like the ability to kind of run. So I was like, this is this is already kind of a pretty good, well-oiled machine. And so uh, I've kind of doubled down efforts on making DevOps Days Austin, you know, pretty good. We're trying to make it as good as we can. What were some highlights from DevOps Days Austin that kind of stuck with you this year? Uh, anything that kind of really, any talks or anything that really stood out to you um, uh, this year? Uh, yeah, we had, you know, we had some really great uh, talks over at Austin. One of the things I, I mentioned to people whenever they're like, hey, why, what makes DevOps Days Austin uh, different than other ones? Why, you know, there's the DevOps Days in, in pretty much every major city that you could, could think of or within, a, within an hour or two driving distance from any place that you could think of here in the U.S. And, uh, and then even globally, there's a lot of good options. But uh, DevOps Days Austin uh, we started DevOps Days Austin in 2012, so also kind of a long, long, long bit of, of kind of running continuous conferences. And our first two talks in 2012 for the keynotes slots were both security talks. It's uh, my uh, my friend Nick Galbraith, who uh, is a CTO over at uh, at Signal Sciences, uh, and then. Um, uh, then we had James Turnbull, and I forget where James Turnbull's at now. I feel bad about that, but um, but he was over at uh, I think at Puppet at the time, and but both were security focused talks, and those really um, uh, and th those were really really great uh, setup. And then I think every single year since then we've had some security flavor. Well, that that also continued this year. Uh, we had Wendy Nather uh, come and speak, and I thought uh, I thought her talk was was pretty helpful. Um, she had some good good nuggets in there. I think that. Um, just how GDPR is affecting us. And we will sometimes view it as one of the things I like that she said that you may have heard her say this before, but um, GDPR is a good thing because it actually gave, gave us a reason to think about how we're using data. Um, and there, there was this conference, it tended, tended to I've kind of wind back to something else that I've been thinking about lately. I wanted to see what you guys think of this as well, but I was at uh, a conference for defense, which is, it's really great art, art into science conference for defense, uh, free conference. It happens in Austin. I just got like on able to go to it this year for the first time, but if you guys ever get the chance, it was great. But the room is probably half full of PhDs and, and masters, you know, folks. And like, you kind of look around and you're like, Oh, like I am on the undereducated side of people here. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, and like every talks like, well, I wrote this paper and then, uh, and I, or read these five papers, you know, and you're like, okay, like I got, I got some work to do to keep up with, with, these, with these folks. Um, 
but one of the things we had a we had an open space breakout, and it kind of relates to Wendy's comment about how we treat data. But um, where you know how do how do we decide um, you know what what to secure, how to lock it down, and one of the premises I raised, I said, well, if you're actually keeping the data, like that is a signal that you you care about it, and and the amount of time you decide to keep it, and what data you decide to keep, like that's kind of in scope for for audit. But like we sh we should sort of get more comfortable with treating like um, you know our digital exhaust as merely that same thing that it is and just let it go like let those logs and stuff go that you're you're not really you know that aren't primary for you right and you're actually giving like because lawyers and and politicians they have no way to understand what data is important or what's not or or you know like oh yeah like that's just some log files from our you know kubernetes cluster or whatever we don't really care about that for for you know governance type stuff or whatever it just it's kind of a random, we all thought out example, but um, but they have no idea how to determine that. But we as professionals have the, as, as security and IT professionals have the ability to say, yeah, we, we think that's important because we've dedicated all these machines and computers and storage and backups and all this stuff to it. Um, and so that's to them the only indication that they have. So for us to kind of start treating that sort of stuff, it's like, yeah, we only save it for like two weeks and then it just sort of leaves our, our infrastructure. Um, so we're we're sort of kind of creating some of that problem. I don't know. What do you what do you guys think of that? Is kind of so you're you're talking about and, yeah. So you're talking about reducing the surf like the surface of potential exposure um, based off of like our technical like we know that you know these logs really aren't useful past whatever. Maybe they're not useful at all. Could be not. Yeah, but they might leak like like we've seen things too. Where where uh, object like user objects and and like basically objects in memory, they have certain sensitive attributes exposed to it, especially if it's like a model object. And so if you accidentally just like print out the entire object in a log, like you may get every single association database wise, like every single column associated with that model object. Um, so like that happens accidentally um, for sure shouldn't but could and so like purging unnecessary logs um i think that's that's that makes sense um determining Wait. what's on what's necessary is kind of like that's more of a yeah it, don't it, have a kind of, great, that's hard but and it doesn't that go against you know splunk's licensing philosophy is you know they want you to log everything so you have to oh, pay yeah. more money right you know i i mean i would agree because i i, I you know, I think about it, you've got like your support logs. Um, it, it does take some discipline to do that though, right? Like to be able to to say, all right, these are our audit logs and we maintain audit logs for at least whatever, you know, six months or a year. Um, and then everything else is support logs and maybe support logs are only good for 30 days or maybe even 60 days in case somebody needs to go back. Um, that. And, but I, I mean, I, I would, I would tend to agree that there's a, there's a window that those are actually useful, and after that, it just becomes, hey, we've got this, you know, gigs and gigs of data that no one ever looks at, you know, that you know we use to load into, you know, some sort of a search engine, and you know, we may comb through it once in a while, but it doesn't really give us a lot of data outside of outside of like this historical use pattern or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I can see that. Sorry, go ahead. Well, and, and it just sort of, we've allowed 
Um, yeah, not, and I'm, I'm speaking of generalities here, but but we've allowed you know things like PCI to just be a start out star across all of our infrastructure and systems, you know, because we haven't isolated and we've kept all the stuff, and you know, and and I'm just it's just it's sort of a question just to throw out there of like how uh, I think we sometimes want to say that uh, the lawyers or the or the or the compliance or the audits or or whatever you know folks are kind of putting this other you know undue pressure on us, but then they're kind of seeing the indicators uh, from us and like how you know how we're treating our applications, how we're treating our our systems, um, and then they're they're just sort of using those as like oh okay well you. You think that you're going to keep that stuff for five years? Like, here's how you're going to do it, right? Um, and, yeah. and there's there's some uh, give and take on this. So, the people at the uh, Art and Science Conference, we had a, a long, long debate about this. No agreement, and and so I'm just kind of throwing out the the digital exhaust uh, bit here. So, yeah, I, I it mean, is I interesting. Say, yeah, and like, uh, okay, so being a consultant, right? Like, I I, I know I run into kind of this like assessment exhaust almost right it's a, it's yeah. a it's a form of digital exhaust but it's also like hey i do a code review and it's like how long do i need to keep around like the artifacts from my testing from my code review um you know like so I like you know it, it, it's it's fallen down into like my infosec policy that we give to people and we're like hey guess what after you know after we get done, done with an assessment we deliver the final report we delete all of your data because we don't want to be the that point that actually gets exploited and they find your code or they find these vulnerabilities through us because that's, I mean, that's another risk exposure, right, that we run into. But I, I think that's what's probably happening on the other side, right, with, with all those log files. I mean, you, you think about Splunk Cloud and other things like other storage locations. If somebody else gets access into that and there is that data in there, it, it ups the exposure. I, I mean, a lot of those PCI exposures back in the day were, hey, guess what? It would take a credit card at a, at a point of sale system, and then it would just log it locally. And that system wasn't protected. So, you know, like the, you think about the target breaches and other things like that, it's all the point of sale systems. That's what they targeted to actually pull that data back. So Seth, you Marie Kondo'd your client's data. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I think that's, but I think that's what we have to do. And like good life practices in the real world also affect kind of our digital, digital lives as well. Right. Oh yeah. 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 They definitely do. Who advises those politicians this is like NIST people like NIST or something like that. That's advising like when, when it comes specifically to GDPR, did Nathan or Wendy, Nathan, what did Wendy talk about? Um, talk at all about like who was all involved in giving that advice what 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 bodies is it academia is it is it you know like i said a government body like nist or, or something like that yeah I, I don't know um yeah i don't i don't know that that bit but we could that's something we should ping wendy about and find out i mean see what she can uncover or or other folks you know note to self invite wendy to the podcast invite wendy yeah be good yeah, there you go. i'm gonna write that down as a matter of fact so i don't forget <laughs> there you go uh, okay <laughs> So and I'll, I'll round out a couple things else from DevOps days. Uh, we had uh, um, we had two other uh, keynoters, which I was really excited about. Uh, Damon Edwards, uh, who he uh, he started uh, he had DTO Solutions, which did a lot of like DevOps implementations for large Fortune 500 companies as consulting, and then has now moved into Rundeck, which is their um, if you have like uh, playbooks or, or runbooks or, or however you think about that in your organization, but um, giving um, 
you know, complicated IT actions to anybody in your organization to say, spin up a cluster, you know, turn off a user, whatever, but sort of uh, put those sort of automations in place. And uh, uh, his talk was great. Um, really kind of just thinking of like how we think about DevOps in the future of that. But then day two, we kind of had a surprise where we brought in Patrick Dubois. And Patrick Dubois is the guy who coined the term DevOps, had the first DevOps Days Gint, which this is the 10 year anniversary for DevOps here coming up this fall. But uh, he keynoted our second day and, and he gave a lot of good uh, advice uh, to the crowd. I, I felt um, personally as, a, as a, someone who's been doing kind of developer relations, developer advocate, evangelism type work. You know, he, he, he kind of spoke to me for a, you know, for a moment there. He's like, hey, you know, I thought like the way like we're, we're doing all this hard marketing and, and DevOps, you know, combined work. And that's um, that takes some real effort. You know, I think and I felt like just he sort of like went through a lot of the roles that were all that are a lot of people that are gaining traction using DevOps, taking part of the ecosystem and, and uh and just you know hit on their future for those those different roles and like where we're growing growing so uh even though he told us is like yeah it, and, and i kind of have asked i'd asked him to do this at the five-year uh, mark as well i was like tell us about the future of devops he's like i don't like to talk about the future of devops because we have no idea like um he's real practical and he's a real um real humble guy but we all see him as kind of we call him the godfather of devops and he also doesn't like that either um but we we still do it so What's funny is what I think it was like maybe 2013, 2014, you were, you yourself are still trying to get a grip on like what DevOps is. And, you know, in your DevSecOps talk, I feel like you, you've gotten to a point where you definitely have like a good definition of what DevOps is. I mean, certainly like you, you, you covered it pretty well, which like definitely we want to get into. Uh, but yeah, again, like back in 2013, 2014, 2015, maybe even it was still yeah. like trying to figure out like, is this a cultural thing? Is it, is it like the tools? Is it both? But yeah, actually, if you could go yeah. like, you know, give a little cool. sort of a, a background on that. Yeah. If you, if you rewind to two, th so uh, DevOps day, DevOps got started through um, Patrick Dubois and then also Andrew Clay Schaefer. Um, they were at uh, an agile conference in like 2008 and they were like, let's talk about agile infrastructure. And there's a whole like, there's a whole bunch of uh, background on that and that meeting went awry and stuff. And then, but then they ended up, there was a talk at two th in 2009 velocity uh, where uh, John Alspa uh, gave a talk on um, 10 deploys a day at Flickr. And that's kind of referenced as the, the canonical thing that, that kind of helped kick off the movement. And there's a big like dev and ops working together uh, heart logo and then later that year uh patrick uh said let's have this thing called devops days and that's the first time it was ever used kind of in that context and as a as a thing we're gonna have devops days and it's gonna be in ghent and uh i think 50 100 people went to it and this is 2009 so this is 2019 we have the kind of the 10-year reunion so it's pretty exciting I'm, I'm hoping to go to that i'm planning on going to that so uh, is that ghent ghent belt belgium oh, or yeah, right, yeah. yeah yeah belgium yeah Okay. Um, and uh, and oh, and cool thing about Patrick is he has uh, a lot of background in security. Like uh, he's he, you know, he we've talked about that several times, but he's kind of in the uh, early two thousands, uh, uh, did a lot of security consulting or, or work around that. So it's pretty cool. So we do have uh, true ops. You know, a lot of ops guys kind of have security backgrounds as well, or do that. Um. Uh, where was that? So, but I think at that point in DevOps history, uh, Ken, you ask a great question because 
um, Adam Jacobs, who is the, the founder of Chef and, uh, and and other folks as well, but like they're, they're kind of famously known for saying DevOps is a cultural movement, period. Like that's it. And then, then, then they like 2011, 12, I don't know, we'll get this wrong, but there was the uh, DevOps is a cultural professional movement or professional cultural movement or something. Like that. <laughs> so we, we resisted a lot of definite definitions. Why? Because um, we saw what ITIL and these other things have done. We've seen how um, everybody just talks about tools, tools, tools. Even at that time, DevOps equals chef or puppet. Now it equals Kubernetes or whatever. Um, and and there's just a, a, a pushback on that. Um, John Willis um, and Damon Edwards uh, came out with the CAMS model. I don't remember when, 2012, 13, somewhere in that range, which is its culture, automation, measurement, and sharing. Um, then people said, well, what about Lean? So you have CLAMS. Uh, my good friend, Ernest Muller, who uh, we did those lynda.com or LinkedIn learning classes, if you have access to that. Um, we did several courses together on, on that, but he wrote a, a post on the Agile Admin, which I, as far as I know, is one of the most popular posts on like, what is DevOps? I think if you just type in what is DevOps, that's your first result, unless some SEO dark magic at, at uh, you know, in some, <laughs> some marketing department somewhere has overtaken us. But uh, but Ernest's definition is really great, really thoughtful, it gives both the history of it, talks about how it solves the scope in the software delivery uh, domain. Um, and then there's, you know, the continuous delivery movements have come out, the, the, the way that people really kind of grew towards configure, configuration management. Uh, then, you know, Docker, containers, Kubernetes, serverless. We've seen lots of growth in technologies, but DevOps is still hold, hold, held on. Marketing people still want to convince you it's their tool. Their tool is the DevOps answer and, you know, going to make that happen. But um, I think that the movement is still kind of holding on to that idea like it's a cultural movement. And I, I felt that a lot at DevOps Days Austin when we, we had stuff around um, people dealing with burnout. Um, we had talks on um, um, how to do things like chaos engineering. Um, I think it's, it's a real interesting uh, aspect that we're, we're kind of bringing into the fold, um, kind of through the heritage of, of Netflix's uh, uh, chaos monkey. And then uh, what what else is good there? Oh, there is a we always we've, it's kind of become a thing, um, but now there is these uh, pay talk sessions. So everybody goes in anonymously, puts in how much they make and their role g generically, uh, and then they they publish the data uh, locally to that group or to the whole conference. Um, and then you can know, like, all right, I live in Austin. Am I on the lower end of pay things? Am I on the upper end? How many years of experience do I have? Um, where do I fit? And then they'll have an open space where people can get together and talk about it, ask for advice. Every year we see people's lives change through that, where they're like, I've realized that I'm 30 G's underpaid, 50 G's underpaid, you know, or I'm really doing myself a disservice and I need to go either get a raise or go somewhere else or, or you know, whatever. So, and uh, that's, to me, that's always a rewarding thing uh, for that to happen with someone either who's a junior developer or who's been kind of in the same job for a while and hasn't, um, um, hasn't had the right, you know, ups for the salary. Yeah, I feel like that's sort of a hush hush thing. And I uh, like the, talking about the salary. And um, I actually got hit up. I want to say it was last week or the week before by someone who's building an appsec team and or growing the appsec team and needed to sort of like figure out where current salaries are. And was like, you know, uh, you know, it was pretty like do you mind you know i was like no i don't mind i'm pretty transparent about it but it is just from the like the way it was broached it was kind of like 
oh, it's really like sensitive, hush hush thing. But I think it's great that people are sharing that information so that you don't find yourself, um, yeah, like super undervalued or underpaid. Um, it's an it's a, it's definitely interesting. And one of the things you just talked about, which I, I kind of want to get into, um, is so like resiliency in because like going back to the Phoenix project, one of the big takeaways. Uh, it wasn't just like being able to, you know, ship code quickly and iterate. It was also like a, cause you just talked about it with chaos engineering, like the, the idea that, you know, anything could happen. You could have a deploy that, that breaks, you could have whatever, something that goes down database backend, whatever the case is, like whatever technical issue that com comes up, you've, um, you're able to be resilient and, and, and come back pretty quickly and, uh, and, you know, not lose service to your, not degrade your SLA, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, what principles of chaos engineering, you know, do you kind of like, to you are like interesting ways to approach uh, resiliency and like try and test how resilient you are? Yeah, um, that's a, yeah, it's a good question. And it's a, it's something that is fit for your organization specifically. Um, and we we can look at the Netflix story, right? And we can see Security Monkey when they came out. Um, you know, uh, I remember when it first came out at Velocity Conference, and it was like, ooh, Security Monkey, you know. And and uh, and I think everybody probably knows the origin story, but quickly, it's uh, Amazon, uh, Netflix ran on Amazon. Amazon said we crash sometimes. Netflix is like, we found out they don't crash very often, and we wanted to make sure our stuff, our developers were writing things that could withstand when they actually did crash. So Security Monkey goes in and every now and then just turns off machines, right? Not not really rocket science development work, and you could write this with a Bash shell script and the right you know uh, uh, you know key uh, you know pretty easily. And uh, first gen was similar to that, right? And it's kind of grown into more um, more uh, full featured version. But but even then, not everybody is Netflix. Um, not everybody is just uh, streaming, you know, House of Cards or something, and where someone can just like hit the play button, you know, again. Like like if a stream goes down, we're not that upset. You know, just like, especially if it restarts, right? Uh, you don't feel that same way about your bank or, or other types of transactions, just naturally how the world works. Um, so uh, there's a great book that I think if anybody's getting interested into this area, uh, Michael Nygaard has a book called Release It. Now, Release It, the first edition uh, had a lot of great uh, patterns in it, like uh, bulkheads and, and uh um, circuit breakers and like how to do software development and, and these kind of failover capacities. So you'll have you'll have plenty of that those type of um, components written in there as well. But you want to get the second edition because in the second edition he adds the chaos engineering chapter, and then he sort of walks in like some you know um, uh, crawl uh, walk run type scenarios on on all right here's what you could do uh, here's how you could build up game days here's how you think about. Um, postmortems. Um, here's how you deal with uh, with failure and and building towards that. And you know, I think in security, we we have a heritage of dealing with this. Like we, there's the the uh, the CIA, uh, you know, triangle, right? It's confidentiality, integrity, availability. Yet for most of my career, I don't know, probably for y'all's too, but like you don't care about the A. Like the A is like that's somebody else's <laughs> that's somebody else's problem. 
Um, yep. But in early days, you know, theology of security, right? Like we had this, we had this in our mind, right? Like we had this that that systems have to be up, right? And I've I've faced uh, in my career, I've faced developers telling me stuff like, "You just want machines powered off and unplugged, or whatever," right? And you're like, "Okay, like that that shows you you think I'm a moron, right?" But security does the same thing to developers through through uh, rude comments a lot of times, but. But when we, we work together, it's like, yeah, we work together to assure all those uh, types of components. Um, it, you know, this, I know I keep bringing up the DevOps days, Austin, maybe it's just fresh in my mind, but one of the things Patrick Dubois mentioned was uh, um, just enough security. Like um, he, early, early days of DevOps, he also, he has a blog, uh, it's called the Jedi and it's uh, just enough uh, developed infrastructure or deployed infrastructure. I think it's developed infrastructure. Um, so you, you just need you just need the infrastructure you need to get your job done. You don't you don't name your servers or whatever. You just have these instances run to do the things you need. And and uh, we were batting back and forth, but I was like, yeah, I think just enough uh, security to succeed. Right. That's yeah. all. That's all you really need to to fulfill mission. Like that's the amount of security you want. Um, and um, Yes. I know it's kind of a ramble there on that. that yeah. That no, that's yeah. That, that that's really interesting though, because that goes back to the the idea of the minimal viable product, right? Yeah. You know, as you know, hey, when you're releasing, and I know as a security guy, guys, we have a tendency to be like, no, you need all the things, right? Yeah. And if you don't have all the things, you're not going to be secure. But most of the most of the startups and the small companies that I work with, I, it's it's more of a discussion of what makes sense for you, right? If if it's if it's just authentication and that's the only like real thing that you need to worry about, let's make sure that's rock solid. And then we can deal with everything else as you grow. But that, that minimal viable set is very hard to identify, especially when you're coming from a large organization, right? You look at a Google or, you know, any of those big ones where they have so many different people that are responsible for so many different security facets. It's hard to take that and distill that down to a, you know, 20 person team where you've got, you know, five developers and some salespeople and, Okay, what is it that you're really concerned about? And yeah, I mean, so I, I like I, I can see where that's a that, that's a huge issue, but we don't look at it that way, right? You know, you look at PCI DSS, and there is no minimal viable security. It's like you have to have all the things if you want to accept credit cards. That's right. Here, here's the minimum PCI, right? There's not like a there's not like a ten page option. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and but that but in that in that case though, it's like okay, so we're going to push that off to somebody that handles credit cards. You know, we're going to go to a you know, Braintree or Square or whatever, somebody else so that we don't have to worry about it, which works, but it, it may actually be stifling some innovation for some of those companies, right? Yeah. Actually, right. even that's been like, once PCI realized that everybody's offloading to like Braintree or Stripe or whatever, they, they, they have now expanded to like how you handle um, putting those, those, like, if you're just putting JavaScript components, for example, into your like website, they have like, now they have more, it's still in scope, right? It's now in scopes and, and you have to be doing everything right on the side. That's including like that JavaScript, for instance. So they, they got wise to that trick. They, they, yeah. they they're going to get their, they're going to get their, their money. Hours. Many of their bill of hours. Yeah. <laughs> so what? yeah. In between, um, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go, go for it again. Oh, no, I did want to make sure we actually, sorry, before I go into the next, start asking you some more stuff. Uh, Matt, Matt had, Matt Conda had asked, he said, I 
it's somewhat eroded, uh, just like what happened with Agile as companies build DevOps teams. Is this an anti-pattern? Uh, hey, uh, Ken kind of broke up there. Um, can you oh, say that again? Sorry. No, it was just uh, Matt had a question that, that said, uh, I see the idea that the culture, sh so going back to the culture of DevOps, okay. um, he's saying it's like somewhat eroded, kind of like what, what happened with Agile as companies are now building DevOps teams. Uh, is that an anti-pattern? I actually don't really understand the question. I think. Mm, um, yeah, I, I know what the question is. Okay. Or I'll, I'll at least answer the straw man version of the question that I want to answer. How about that? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. That, that works. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, uh, DevOps is a uh, methodology for delivering uh, software that that really, and you can look at, at different uh, literature on this, but one of the, the definitions that I like or one of the approaches is the it's extension of agile into operations, which I think is a true, a true statement. Um, why... The, the anti-pattern piece is um, 2012, 13, 14, you know, um, there was the the, arise, the the job title came out of DevOps engineer. I'm now a DevOps engineer. Now, some people didn't like this and some people fought this, but then, then they're like, oh, then they saw their paychecks and like, oh, this has like, you know, extra money on it. So like, I'll take the title, like no problem. Um, I, I myself was a, a DevOps engineer for part of my life. Um, because they needed a new way to classify it, right? Hiring managers said, like, I, I need a, a sysadmin ops person that's going to be able to do this work, uh, but if I just list sysadmin number three or whatever, it's like I'm in this hiring range. If I put DevOps, you know, ad, you know engineer, whatever, then I can hire something else. But um, that also gave rise to uh, putting these, uh, like, they'd have, like, a DevOps team, and so you'd have your... Um, you'd have a you know bimodal IT. You'd have may, may, so there's different options here. You could be running in like this bimodal state where it's like all of our new stuff. So we're DevOpsing that all the old stuff. It's like life supported. Um, you could also have this idea where you have a DevOps team where you take your sysadmins, you rebrand them as DevOps. Um, say here's some Kubernetes, go knock yourselves out, and uh, and now you're like still a service team to all these other ones, still throwing over the wall developers interacting with the DevOps team just like they did with the with sysadmins. Um, the third, uh, yeah, and so, and, that, and that's, that's somewhat, um, uh, I mean, that's, that's somewhat common and we see where in, in that, in that standpoint, like that is, that, that can be problematic if we think of DevOps as just like this little group of people and not as like, we're all participating in it. I, I would say we do need people that are specialists in like how to run Kubernetes because guess what? It's not easy. Um, or, uh, or managing our Amazon piece. Uh, we do need people that are. Um, you know, understand how to do the right inspection and monitoring or, or um, system level type work. Um, models that I've found successful is where you take um, people that are more geared naturally towards like infrastructure and operations type stuff and putting them on teams and then kind of building around the products that we're delivering. Uh, I, fi I find people generally have more success with that. There's other people I've seen models where they, they have the DevOps team, but they um, they all rotate inside of different teams that they, they serve and are a part of. Um, and it's a little more of a fluid type exercise. The, what we're really seeing give way most in the market is kind of the, the people have stopped calling themselves in a large part for DevOps teams. And they're kind of been the SRE and uh, site reliability engineering or, uh, which Google, uh, wrote, there's written a couple books on, on the topic, um, 
and so we're, we're seeing more of a kind of the, the SRE uh, team arise where once a product gets to a certain level of stability, then the SRE team will sort of take over responsibility for it. There's to have certain metrics for it. Uh, but those are like larger companies, um, companies that are really ready to like handle that, that sort of component. Um, I'm not, you know, super in love with, with, uh, with kind of all of this delineation, but I do think there is a, I don't know. I don't know if like that's the breakdown that Matt is speaking of, or we still have lost the the idea. We still we just because we're technologists and because it's easier to talk about code than real problems. It's uh, it's easier to talk about um, um, the latest uh, latest and greatest uh, you know um, Docker Kubernetes whatever it is we're interested in serverless, and we're and we'll we'll kind of focus and hinge on that technology because hey like that's what we would like to do. And then I see that as part of the erosion of the uh, the DevOps culture um, where we're kind of working as a team to deliver uh, software, you know. So we'll see. I don't know if Matt Condo will accept that definition. Mm-hmm. But well, I mean, it, it's what I'd say is that, you know, anytime you commoditize a field, like this happened with, I mean, it, it's happened with software security where, you know, there was this big put back when dynamic scanners could still somewhat do something, you know, before single page apps and all that came along. But um, there was a time where, you know, brief period of time where dynamic scanners were pretty popular and and being purchased uh, heavily. And then they would, you know, you'd have somebody who just basically pointed it at a site, um, gave some creds, maybe some added some macros. And that was like an AppSec software security job, right? Like it went from legitimately understanding software and then what problems arise to like being this, this this field where now it was for a while i was noticing that it seemed like the it was getting diluted diluted by this you know if you can run a scanner then you're you you're in appsec you're an appsec person and uh but, but, like i don't think that I don't existed. Know I'm on the right podcast anymore <laughs> like I, I you know i would say that uh um yeah that uh appsec um i mean it, it's not a, it's not really a thing. I don't think anymore. I mean, you, you know, you need, you need to understand software security. And, and by the way, I'm not saying if you run a scanner, like you don't understand software security. I'm just saying there was a brief period of time where people were getting hired and I don't know if that's still a thing. I don't think it is. Um, but you know, they were getting that title and really all it was was a generalist security person who ran a scanner. Yeah. So to say, I don't want to like say like static and dynamic analysis engines don't have their place. That's not what I'm saying. Like they definitely have their place. I'm just saying that like, if that's all, you know, you're not, and it would be the same thing as like, Oh, I, like you said with chef and puppet, I know how to configure chef and puppet. So like that makes me a DevOps expert. Right. Yeah. And on the DevOps team. Yeah. Well, and I mean, what I'm, what I'm basically hearing from you, Ken is like, you feel like you need to be able to learn how to write code, like to be able to be in security. I mean, I, ah, yes, let's get on that topic. Let's bring it up. I'm glad you, oh my God, I'm glad you raised this topic. This was the huge, this was the huge thing that we wanted to, to kind of cover. Um, Cause this was, let, let's back up. So in between, uh, you know, Pina Colada's by the pool, uh, Matt and I actually, you know, we're, we're attending the conference and Matt actually, or, uh, uh yeah. Did I say Matt? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, well, Sorry, Matt James. James. I had, yeah, he's, yeah. I'm reading his responses. Sorry. I'm having a, a ton of like brain farts today. So whatever. Um, 
Yeah. So in between pina coladas, James and I were attending the conference. James gave a talk and during his talk, he said, um, he, he made the, the statement that, Hey, like, if you want to be in security, you should learn to code. Um, now that blew up on Twitter and, uh, I had been asked my opinion, uh, at the conference. And like, personally, I think it's crazy to say that it's not useful to learn to code, but, um, we would want your expanded thoughts and kind of the, cause there were, that was a heated thing on Twitter. Like people really genuinely, oh, yeah. I got uh, some email, which I yeah. really don't get. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're a super nice guy. You definitely helped the community, but that one thing that you said that was picked up on and people just went, you know, like there was a little, little war on Twitter about that. So yeah, yeah, and I, you know, uh, I, I put on there. It's like developers should learn how to code, right? I, I put I, uh, the, the talk is about DevSecOps and like the um, the measure uh, framework and kind of being a maker and uh, being a part of the kind of a maker community is like the M in in the measure framework. Um, and I, I thought like there's some other things I that people might not like or would be controversial or whatever. I didn't think that was actually going to be one of them. I was really surprised, and I. Um, um, but I, and I even posted, like I did post, I do realize that sometimes that is, uh, not, that's not a full opinion that everybody shares just yet, but, um, it's not, it's on the slide. It says, you know, develop, uh, what did it say? Something like, um, security must, must learn how to write code or something. And then I had two references on there. I had, uh, uh Shannon Leitz over at Intuit. That's what they've done. They've done over there. Um, and Aaron Reinhardt, uh, who's now over at Verica where, where I'm working at now, but, uh, he's, uh, that was whenever he was over at United Healthcare Group. And so, uh, both of those, uh, security leaders, uh, at their, their organizations were like, Hey, guess what? Like we're going to participate in software development. If you don't know how to write code, like, that's going to be a problem for you. Um, and they both have transformation stories about how they took their security team and really helped them grow, whether it's like Python or Go uh, or Ruby, but help them like learn a language, add some automation to the pipeline. And it was a really helpful um, uh, helpful thing for everybody. And they had, you know, and, and with anything, it's like you get a little bit of pushback, but, but even the people who um, gave the original pushback, and, and Aaron and Shannon would both be great people to, to talk about this further, but... Um, they they said yeah okay we're we're um, uh, we're really glad that we learned how to do this but on Twitter yeah it, and at the conference I, I thought it was kind of a it was a, kind of a yawn point like you know everybody's like yep you should like um, but on Twitter a lot of software you know I like we software, also, when you look software. at the attendees yeah. yeah when you look at the attendees too they're all people that like write tools or write code or you know whatever like so yeah. It, it yeah it's like a non-event at the conference like for people that weren't there uh, <clears throat> Seth. Uh, for people that weren't there, you, um, you you said it, and I think everybody was just kind of like, "Yeah, that makes sense." <laughs> you know, that's how it went there. Yeah. Well, so and that, that was totally it. Like I, because I saw it post on Twitter, right? Because all my 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 complete feed was Locomocosec, right? <laughs> so I saw it post, and I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that, that that makes sense." And then I came back, probably like you guys, you know, a few hours later, I was like, "Holy crap! What what happened? And what's this like?" Uh, reaction that you're getting to it, right? Well, I will say this, Seth. If you're going to get trolled and people like really upset at you, it's really awesome to do it by the pool holding a mic. <laughs> <That's laughs> <it. laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know that, but okay. That's the, that's the best way. I've, I've only had it really happen once where people have been up. This is just, this is the one time when I've ever been trolled, but I was like, okay, like I'm, uh, I'm getting some 
significant pushback here. All right, but at least uh, got my tie in hand. So were there any arguments on Twitter that sort of persuaded you at all? Or was it just like, no, no, this makes sense? Um, you, you know, I mean, I, I think that the the main problem is uh, there's two two problems. And I think all, all almost all arguments can resolve be resolved by having like people actually explain what they mean in their uh, you know, with like good definitions. So if you spend most of your time like defining the subjects that you're talking about, you could probably avoid it. Um, apparently to sec- to a lot of people on Twitter, um, security means everything. Like security means the, the people who are, um, you know, law enforcement and, and, and carrying guns and bodyguards and server room, you know, door monitors and, uh, I don't know. Just like it was like basically they meant you know they went star dot star across IT and physical and whatever. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously I'm talking in a software context. I'm not just saying like that the lawyers need to learn how to write you know Python or whatever, right? It's like that's that's fine. And and I was I'm speaking more. I think of it's more like if you consider yourself a security professional, you know, software security professional. I don't. I had some debates with with uh, with one guys like listen, like, I don't feel like lawyers, like, identify, like, they don't say I'm a cybersecurity professional. They say I'm a lawyer. I do cybersecurity law, right? Like, that's that's a different statement, you know? So, one, if you kind of say, who are we talking about? We're talking about people that live in the software world. Um, and uh, um, two, it's, like, know how to write code. I'm not saying that we're leading the development process. We're just participating in it. We're we're much like ops was whenever ops kind of got brought into the DevOps thing where it's like, let's let's take our systems, infrastructure as code. This is going to be a really great thing um, for us and developer. And they kind of participated with that. They're checking into version control. They're dealing with all this stuff. I think the same thing needs to happen for security. And so we're, we're, uh, we're not saying that you are, you know, the guy who writes or, or, or person who writes all the, all the stuff for the software application, but you're adding in some security components. You're doing the, the reviews, you're taking, taking part in it and just being part of the um, kind of the flow of, of, of doing software development. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, like I said, everybody there and ever, I mean, definitely set an eye on the podcast. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. If you're going to be responsible, like one thing that I always recommend, um, to, to folks that are like maybe I'm mentoring or, you know, giving advice to is when you, when you like explain a vulnerability to a software engineer is also try your best to, to write your own, even if it's crappy code, like your own version of the fix, like crappy in the sense it's like not optimal, right? It's not optimal. Yeah. Maybe super efficient and let them roll with how they want to change it. And like, that really does work. It, it gets a quicker fix out, a better fix. Um, but like, if you don't understand, like, I don't even understand how you can find like that issue in code. If you can't, if you're not, it's like saying, you know, I want to find missing issue. I don't want to learn to read or write. Like that doesn't work. So yeah, I mean, the other thing that we have, you know, that's kind of add on to your, to your statement there is that, you know, cause you brought up like ops and we're talking about DevOps, you know, developers are pushing code that becomes infrastructure you should, i would argue as a developer if you're doing that you should learn networking and you should learn like you should go back and look at lessons learned for networking and you know security security is a part of that but i mean i've seen where you know in in the cloud infrastructure 
uh, with code that become you know becomes cloud infrastructure where it's completely misconfigured. And I'm not even talking about from just a security standpoint. I'm talking for like understanding what CIDR is and understanding just basic networking. Um, I don't think that it makes sense with the responsibility of deploying infrastructure to a developer if they if they have no background in networking. It just doesn't make sense, but it happens. It certainly happens. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's right. It, there is a there is kind of the further and one of the parts whenever DevOps got you know kicked off, it was like okay, developers will now be on call the systems they maintain and support. And there was a movement of, part, part of the movement was the, the first fold I think was moving sysadmins into this kind of like using development practices to, to deal with their infrastructure. I think the other half of it is the, the uh, that's the ops to dev. Now we need, and then we also started to have seen the dev to ops thing. It's like, okay, well now I'm carrying the pager. Now I kind of, I don't, maybe I'm not like a Back, you know, back then, chef or puppet expert or a Kubernetes, you know, expert, but like I know how to restart the pods. I could, could, um, you know, take take care of this. I know how our Amazon infrastructure is more or less built or, or whatever you're running, right? It's, but there is there is that movement back and forth, and I think security is just another component in this. And this is where kind of the DevSecOps piece. It's like that they're part of the overall suite uh, um, to, you know, bridge all this together. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, and I, I don't know, I go back to the whole uh, coding, you know, hey, if you're going to be doing software security or DevOps, coding is a good thing, right? But I, like, I go back to, hey, there's the, you know, there, there was the time where I was doing more like admin work for iOmega, like their initial kind of DevOpsy stuff. Um, and like, one of the first things I had to do was figure out like how Sun OS, like, like how Solaris worked, right? You know, there's no way that you can like tell me how to secure a Solaris system if you've never installed it, if you don't have an account on it, right? It's kind of that that base level of knowledge that you need to yeah. be able to operate in the space. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's what you were going for. And that's why we all just kind of nodded our heads and moved yeah. on. But it, it does like, and then I can also understand the other side where somebody on Twitter is like, well, man, I, I like I, I'm, a, I'm a security engineer that just does firewall rules or security groups or whatever, right? Like, I don't need to know how to code. And, you know, they kind of get up in arms as far as, well, you're telling me that, like, I can't do my job on a daily basis. And it's like, no, you didn't really understand the, the audience and what you were going for here. But, yeah, you're right, you know. <laughs> You, well, you have your base level, I understand. Yeah, and, and even that that person, right? They they have to kind of take part in the automation part of the flow, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think we saw this with um, sysadmins and operations folks uh, originally when they were they were kind of sort of getting brought into the coding practices. Um, it's that well, you may not consider it coding, but like you know how to configure Nginx that like any developer has no idea, right? Or you know the secret Apache conf that you've been, you've, you've stored all your information on wikis and stuff, but like there's 50 people on the planet that know how to like optimize Apache and you're one of them. Like, guess what? Like you, you actually know how to code. It's just, it's expressed slightly differently. Here, there's some other toolkits you can pick up that'll be helpful for you. But, um, you know, kind of broadening that definition of what does it mean to participate in the, in the software delivery. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I always go back to like shell scripting is coding. Right? Yeah. Like you you yeah. have variables, you have if then else, you've got select statement. You know what I mean? It's like, hey, you know, you're you're pulling out of a file a list of, uh, you, you've got a file that is a database, like you've got Apache config file. That's a database of information that you are using and manipulating. It's kind of looking at it in a different light. 
Um, and if you, you, you can't discount that from a, you know, security perspective, like those bash shell scripts, they, I mean, they run, I'm sure half the world at this point, right? Yeah, they work, man. And, and they do, right? They're super reliable. They've, you know, they probably aren't versioned like they probably should be, but at the same time, whoever created those and, you know, made them stable, it, that's a development process, even if they didn't recognize it at the time. So I don't know. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I guess we agree. I mean, it's basically what yeah. it boils down to. Is, you know, everyone should learn to code, right? There you go. Some level. We'll start round two of the uh, – of the, but the, the, maybe people will talk to you guys instead of me because the Mai Tais are gone. So Yeah. And until I have a Mai Tai, I'm not going to tweet that out. Sorry. You know. Well, um, I did have a question is uh, so because we didn't really get to talk about your background and we didn't get to we haven't got to talk a lot about you personally. But uh, I know you're currently at Ver Verica as an advocate and senior security engineer. Um, is Verica like is, is it stealth mode? Can you talk about it or no? Like I, I actually don't. Uh, no. Yeah. Yes. And yes. Um, yes. Okay. I, I, uh, I was at, you know, and we kind of hit around this, too. But uh, uh, I was at Signal Sciences and uh, really love of the, the tech over there. And then uh, Aaron Reinhardt, uh, one of my friends is getting started with Verica and they're kind of diving into what is chaos engineering and security uh, mean together. And so we're, we're helping um, large enterprises tackle that, that question. And like, I want to do uh, chaos engineering and security type testing in a, uh, in a way that's, that's going to help us, you know, build, you know, safer systems. Um, and so we're we're kind of we're working on that, but we're yeah we're we're in stealth mode on that. So it's it's kind okay. of very 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 early days, but uh, uh, we're we're excited for it. And I do feel like it's uh, like whenever I think about what is the future of security, and and uh, um, to me the two two areas that I really love the most right now, as far as like where we're, where we're growing, I think it's uh, chaos uh, type stuff. Um, anything around that that domain and kind of the overlaps with security, and then the other domain is the uh, kind of the the honeypot or deception type tactics uh, that people are doing. So we had we had the rise of honeypots, you know, a while ago, but I feel like there's the weaponization of deception that is that is happening now, and we see I see it popping up at conferences where people are talking about the stuff they're doing, um, but they're kind of all still hush hush about it. But we're I think we'll see another rise of companies. Uh, and I think this time, because there was a honeypot rise, you know, five six years ago, but I think this time it's gonna gonna stick. So it may not, but but I, I think those are the two areas where I see a ton of growth. So it's funny when you so when you went up on stage and you know you're giving your talk. I didn't at the time. I had I didn't know you had even left Signal Sciences, um, and. Uh, there was you know wasn't a whole lot. I don't think public at that point that you had switched to Verica. But um, just real quick, like I'm a little hard of hearing in my, I'm in a lot hard of hearing in my right ear. And uh, so like I typically, especially with like audience noise or just noises around, like I don't, anyways, for about a good solid couple hours, I was so confused and thought you said Vericode. So afterwards, everyone's like, where'd he go? I'm like, I think he said Vericode. Like, I'm pretty sure I heard Vericode. And they're like, no, it's not Vericode. So yeah, there were, like there's this whole confusion, and then I'm spreading the confusion at the table, and then, yeah, obviously we figured out. Yeah, and, and there's uh, yeah, and there's there's a lot of things that sound like Verica. When I first told my wife, she had heard of Vericote, I think, and then uh, um, if you type in Verica.com, it's like a, it's something that's not related to us. We're Verica.io, and it's just a logo. So yeah, it's yeah. Very, uh, um, 
it's very mysterious uh, in that sense, but we're um, the, the, the name sort of harkens back to our, this idea that you had continuous integration, then you then we sort of built into this idea that we're going to do continuous delivery. Now we think there's continuous verification. <laughs> yeah, and so that's where that's where the name comes out of. Um, so we see that as kind of the next uh, uh, realm where people are, are going to be going. Yeah, it sounds like a highly evolved version of your initial work with rugged DevOps, but like a very, very more, much more advanced uh, sort of um, evolved uh, approach yeah. to that with chaos engineering. So, it, yeah, I mean, I'm interested. Uh, we'll keep an eye out to see what what all happens when once you guys are out of, out of stealth. And uh, sounds really exciting. Yeah, well, we're we're, we're stoked about it. Sweet, awesome. Seth, uh, I know we've gone over an hour here. Uh, you know, is there anything that we need to? Well, yeah. First of all, I think we 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 have we definitely want to ask where you're going to be that people can, if like they're at a conference in the next six months, like where you know what conferences are you speaking at? What conferences are you going to be at so that they can uh, talk to you in person if if they'd like? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to be over at uh, at the end of this or at the first part of June. I'm going to be at New Ops Days uh, in Boston. And so uh, come come check that out. And then I'm planning on going to QCon um, at the end of June, and we're doing a chaos uh, workshop there uh, with one of my uh, coworkers, uh, Matt Davis. So that should be fun. And then uh, I think I'm going to be going to AppSec USA in, in uh, September. And then uh, the only other one that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, DevOps Days Ghent for the 10-year uh, reunion or 10-year anniversary, whatever, of DevOps Days. Uh, that's going to be uh, pretty fun. So if you can come to those or you're going to be at those, love to talk to you, hang out. And then uh, you can also hit me up on, on Twitter at Wicket. And uh, uh, as long as this has nothing to do with, like, security, being able to code. Like, no more questions on that. Can't, can't do any more of that. So only questions on security coding. Got it. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. what we'll put out there. You got it exactly right. That's great, Seth. Thanks. <laughs> sure. I think, I think we just got unfriended by James. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> never, never. Cool, cool. Sweet. Um, well, we appreciate the insight and, you know, you you taking the time to come talk to us for a little while. I know we didn't get into your background too much. Uh, you know, at some time, in, at some point in the future, you know, maybe when you're out of stealth, we'd love to have you back on uh, to sure. talk through what you guys are doing, you know, from, you know, in more detail, you know, once you can talk about it, um, but also, you know, kind of your background, how you got into security, that kind of thing. It's always interesting for the listeners and for people getting into the industry. So, all right. Well, this, this is a really fun uh, podcast, so uh, I'm happy to do it anytime. Sweet, sweet. Thanks, man. Yeah, we appreciate it. Any last minute thoughts? Any last minute like recommendations or anything before we call it for today? Uh, I'm, I'm a book guy. Uh, uh, you know, I like I like that Nygaard book that I mentioned. Release it. Uh, there's another book that I'm sort of geeking out on right now. It's called uh, "Drift into Failure" by Sidney Decker. Uh, okay. It's on uh, on failure and complex systems. Um, what else might be good? Um, yeah, oh, I'm reading a really old book right now as well on the on the Brooklyn Bridge, um, and so uh, that's that's kind of interesting. And and I, well, one of the quotes, and maybe we could just think about this as a as a as an industry. It's like um, as the, as the bridge was going up, David McCullough's book. It's called The Great Bridge, but they just he released the, the 40th edition, 40th anniversary edition recently. But uh, one of the quotes was uh, of of newspaper writers at the time when the bridge was was getting built. It's like one of the great things that like future generations will be able to remember us is something that's not um, 
not the cathedrals. And that is a complete misquote, but idea. But it's not the cathedrals. It's not the the places we we gather. Um, but it's going to be something that's that's just utilitarian in nature. That like we you know this bridge is built so well, it's going to withstand the test of time. But it's going to be it's not our literature or music or whatever. But it's like this this bridge is what will stand to to talk about our generation. You know, many many years from now. And uh, I don't know. I, I was I've been kind of noodling on that, and just thinking like, what is our equivalent in software? You know, what is it? Is it is it just the Pearl. protocols? That- so so you're saying that everyone in security should learn to learn to code pearl that's that's right (laughs) sorry man i like but no no i like i I like that i like the idea that you were going with i stepped into all that all right great well yeah thanks again james um Hold on, don't drop off the podcast quite yet. Uh, we'll we'll go ahead and end things. I think, you know, it, as always, if anyone's got questions, um, all the links will be on the YouTube live channel or on our on our YouTube channel or in Slack. Uh, please come join Slack. If you've got questions, you'd like to reach out to me or Ken or follow us on Twitter at Seth Law, at CK Tricky, or at Absolute AppSec. So, and follow James as well, at Wicket. Uh, a lot of good stuff coming out of him too. So. Yeah, let's not. I'm not going to end it quite yet until I put his handle in there. Let me make sure that I get it in there, and, and that way I can end the the chat, and we'll make sure that we've got his handle in there. All right, cool. It's in there. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good day. Thanks, y'all.